You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Welcome to the Magnificent Podcast. I am your host, Louis Kornfeld, and today my guest is Laura Gray. Thank you for talking today, Laura. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, you are an incredibly prolific comedian and writer and director. Just a few credits that I'm reading out of my notebook right now. You are the creator, co-star of Fairies on IFC Comedy Crib. True. Uh, you also are the co-creator and co-star of Engaged with Jordan Klepper, which is your web series together. Also true. Uh, you also write and perform for Crazy Bitches, Crazy Pussy at UCB Chelsea. <laughs> is that right? That's my sketch show that's running right now. Yeah. Crazy, <laughs> crazy Bitch, Crazy Pussy. That's right. <laughs> it made me laugh uh, uh, to say it too. Uh, uh, along with a whole bunch of other stuff. Thanks for yeah. talking today. Yeah, um, of course. Um, so I want to start off, uh, uh, I read that you studied poetry at Northwestern University. Oh my gosh, I did. I was a creative writing and poetry major. Yeah. How- That's the best joke I've ever told. Is that true? <laughs> do you, do no, you it look- is true. I, yeah, it, it was my major. But it, you look back on that uh, not well? Well, no, actually, I, lo- I, lo- I loved it. I loved what I did in college. It actually taught me how to... Um, read poetry yeah. more than I think write poetry. Yeah. I, I don't know if I have a poet soul. I think I clearly realized when I started reading my stuff aloud that it was making people laugh more than it was making them like crack open, you know, the surface yeah. to get to underneath things, which is what my poetry teacher probably wanted me to be doing instead. Yeah. So not that some poets can't be hilarious, but yeah. You don't normally think of hilarious poets, normally, though they're they're out there. There's some really funny ones. Yeah. Kenneth Koch's pretty funny. Frank O'Hara's pretty funny. I don't know See, anybody. yeah, see, this is this is my, it's such a joke, because no one, no one <laughs> I have no one to talk to me about Rilke. It's Had, like... <laughs> well, I, I would happily talk about Rilke, you know. How did, uh, how did, how do you go from majoring in poetry and creative writing into the world of comedy? Well, um, it was kind of like a mom thing, mm. like... I was going to Northwestern University and I was really excited about it because it's a great college that has both a strong liberal arts program and they also have a really strong performance studies and theater program. So I kind of wanted to major in um, acting Mm -hmm. and drama and I ended up actually minoring in it. But my mom, who is a Chicago public school teacher, uh, was really nice about it and was like, if we're helping you go to Northwestern, you are not majoring in theater. Mm. <laughs> you are going to go in the liberal arts school um, and hopefully eventually uh, become a professor of English. So I was sort of studying English, but while I was doing that in college, I got sort of hooked um, into doing improv and performance. And I started performing a lot in the city in Chicago and I kind of couldn't stop. So I was like majoring in poetry and I was majoring in writing and I was like headed towards being an academic on the professor track, but like that was on paper. Mm -hmm. And in terms of what I was doing, I was always performing, getting in plays, weaseling my way into acting classes, all that good stuff. Was there ever a doubt in your mind about that? Did did you have like a crossroads moment or or you kind of knew? That's a great question. You mean what I was going to do for a living? Yeah. Oh man. Was was an academic life like a serious thing in your mind at any point? Um, like, yes. Well, the fact that I said like, yes, probably makes my (laughs) academic career art, (laughs) like already erasing itself from the past. Um, I thought about it. I, I love teaching. I teach now still, but I think that ever since I was in high school, ever since I saw kids in the hall and the state on 
on television, I always sort of thought I was going to go into comedy. Like yeah. I knew I was going to be a performer in some some way. So I always thought of teaching as something that would supplement my my lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if I would, you know, be a performer who worked like a lot of the great professors at um, Northwestern, like Mary Zimmerman and Frank Galati. Like they were directing and doing cool stuff in the city while still teaching on the university level. So I think I never, I didn't really, I knew I was always going to perform and I thought I was going to do academia, but then I didn't. Yeah. Because I like being poor. Like, <laughs> but I guess academics are poor too, but I, I like being just like really poor. Yeah. Like I don't want, I don't want any security. I don't want any sense of where I'm going to be in three months. Like I don't want to know that the fall semester is starting uh-huh. and I'm on tenure track. Uh-huh. Like I just want, I just want to just open that void. See, there's the poet. But, yeah. I do have a poet inside of that me. That was both beautiful and funny. <laughs> I want to just exist in the void. <laughs> so, uh, um, so what kind of triggered it for you? Kids in the Hall, State. Uh, uh, what else kind of spoke to you when you were younger? Well, I mean, it's sort of just <laughs> listing a laundry list of everyone's, uh, you know, favorite yeah. sketch comedy shows. Monty Python, Faulty Towers. I watched a lot of PBS when I was growing up, and for some reason they showed a lot of, like, old school Whose Line Is It Anyway? Mm-hmm. I caught maybe in the middle of the night, like, at 1 a.m. one morning, I was just watching it and had no idea. I must have still been in maybe grade school. I was so confused yeah. um, that it was improv and it was short form and I didn't know what they were doing and they were doing games and suddenly they were singing and it was really confusing to me, but I, I remember really liking it. So a lot of the sort of British comedy that came over on PBS, they had, they showed Faulty Towers as well. Um, yeah, I, I just, I really dug it. I remember it used to, it, when I would come home from school, Comedy Central back in the day was really crappy, and it was mostly <laughs> just reruns and shitty '80s movies. And and so if right after school, it would be did like, they have like a TNA? Was it like yeah, T- yeah. it was like TNA or yeah. something? Yes, because it was like it was before I knew how to be offended watching it. I was watching it. <laughs> <laughs> it it was like it was pretty gnarly. Um, <laughs> But, like, they would have, like, two-hour kids in the hall block, and they would have, yeah. like, three hours every day of whose line is, is it anyway. Yeah. And for... And AbFab. And AbFab, yeah. Which it, so it, they weren't that terrible. They it, brought over AbFab. Well, they brought, that was, like, interspersed with, yeah. like, Porky's and, yeah. you know, like, meatballs. Porky's too. Not meatballs even Meatballs. Meatballs a thing? No. Well, Meatballs <laughs> is a thing, but it, it, early Comedy Central wasn't even uh, uh, good enough for Meatballs. <laughs> but you would get, like, Meatballs 3. Yeah, they would just do the sequel. Yeah, the really bad ones. <laughs> they don't even want to show you like the original kernel of the meatball. Yeah. It's like the meatball after it's been in the fridge. But there was like time. this. <laughs> I just saw meatballs too again recently. It's I've never Hulu. seen meatballs. This is so outside of my wheelhouse. What is meatballs about? It's a summer camp movie. It, there's nothing to see. What's in it. different about meatballs and porkies? Uh, 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 porkies, I think, is dirtier. Okay. Um, and it's not a summer camp movie. It's about like a bunch of horny. I've only seen Porky's and bits and pieces. A bunch of horny teenage guys in the fifties or sixties in Florida. Okay, trying to have sex with each other. And meatballs, meatballs is a is, co-ed summer camp. It's a co-ed summer camp, uh, um, uh, filled with hijinks led by their head counselor, played by Bill Murray. Oh, it's worth it for Bill Murray. Is he only in the first one, or is he? He's do the only whole... in the first one. <laughs> he was like, I'm out of here. He, well, I don't. I, I, I Oh, the first one's a pretty bad movie, but they take a <laughs> steep, deep nosedive after they, after that first one. It, it gets really bad. How does it get worse? Uh, the second one involves a space alien <laughs> and a crippled kid. 
Okay. Uh, the Richard... Se- sex? No, sex no hygiene? Sex. No, oh. there's actually See, surprisingly like that, well, no sex hygiene. That's going to get hygienes. better. No, if only. Do they just like make lanyards together or something? It, uh... <laughs> You have to, it has to be seen. To now believe. I need to see. It's on Netflix right now. It's on. Hulu. You've ru- you've ruined my weekend. I'm sorry. <laughs> Meatballs two is on Hulu. Meatballs one, I think you got to order on disc on Netflix. Oh, I'll just get, I'll just go right to two. It's free. I'm poor. <laughs> we already said that. That's the comedy don't, lifestyle. Don't you should have chosen academia. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, it was like a really interesting. You discovered all kinds of weird stuff that you wouldn't otherwise discover. Yeah. Because they just had to fill all this programming and and and. It's interesting because there's like a whole generation of comedians that probably soaked up all this great comedy without realizing it. Yeah, I mean, I like the comedy that honestly made me feel weird. Mm. I remember, I remember watching um, a Kids in the Hall sketch. I think it was even it was not even a sketch. I think it was a bumper. It might have been a bumper that they did at the end of one of their shows. The credits were rolling over it, and it was it was one of the guys, and he was in the shower. And he was just taking a normal shower, doing everything he would do, but he was also eating, mm. like, an entire dinner. Mm. Like, I think he picked up, like, uh, chopsticks in a takeout container and, like, a chicken wing. And, like, he was just eating dinner in the shower. And I was like, this makes me feel weird, and I like it so much. Um, so it's that kind of stuff. And AbFab, the same way. Yeah. Like, I didn't even have a, a clue, uh, I think, about, you know, I understood the mother-daughter dynamic, but I didn't know anything about that world that they were talking about mm-hmm. in terms of, like, fashion and drugs and sex. I was, like, from the suburbs. My life was pretty boring and sheltered. But I knew that it was weird. Yeah. Like, I knew she was bizarre, and she was wearing giant crazy shoes, and yeah. I just loved it. I, I, I think the first couple times I watched AbFab, I don't even think I understood a word of what they were saying. And yeah. then, like, slowly, like, Shakespearean language, like, all of her words started coming it took me a while to get into AbFab. Mm. When it was originally on Comedy Central, I, I think I kind of avoided it. It, it sort of why? Because it was women. Maybe, maybe <laughs> it's possible. I mean, yeah. I was like eleven or twelve, yeah. so I think I just didn't have anything in it to identify with at the time. Yeah, I, I think maybe because it was women, and maybe because it, if it was British but not Monty Python or Kids in the Hall, it, it sort of felt. Yeah, you know, like if you're in Europe. And like you turn on the TV and everything looks like TV, but it's sort of like one Not step to quite. the left of TV. Yeah. It kind of gave me that weird feeling of like, yeah, uh, I feel like I'm in somebody else's house kind of. I felt weird about it. Oh, that's but interesting. Then years later, it turns out it's one of the best shows on TV. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. It's so, so dark and so smart. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess you're right. It wasn't a sketch show either. You know, like Kids in the Hall, they were Canadian, right? Yeah. But they were brought down by like Lorne Michaels. Mm-hmm. So they felt, their show, even though it was kind of raw, felt like it was created here. And the Monty Python, I think, because it was so retro and it had those crazy <laughs> like interstitials that were all animated by Terry Gilliam, right? Yeah. Um, I think that maybe felt more accessible. And AbFab, you're right, just feels like you're in, I mean, you're literally in her kitchen. Yeah. And for half an hour, yeah. and there's a beautiful woman smoking cigarettes, and you don't understand. Like you just don't understand why. You have to get into the world of that show, and and right. I, I, I think if you're ten, you're right. Like you don't understand the references that they're talking about. You don't know the generation that they're coming from. Oddly enough, I like that. I like being like there. There are people on this earth that I don't understand, and yeah. there's a laugh track, and it's laughing, and I'm like laughing with the rhythms, but I don't quite don't know, know why, why I'm laughing yet. Yeah. Um, I felt the same way about the young ones. Oh, That's yeah. a real deep cut, yeah. right? Have yeah. you ever seen the young ones? I love that, the young ones. That show is great. Yeah. It's like people that I know are archetypes, but they were archetypes from way before I understood 
you know, like, I was like, oh, I, I grew up in the 80s, so it was like, where's the nerd? Like, you know, you had such different 80s archetypes. It was like the preppy and the nerd and the hot girl, but the young ones is like, oh, my God, like the dirty hippie and then the evil American, um, and then suddenly they're the the food that's rotting in their sink is like a puppet show <laughs> love story talking to each other. Um, and what were the other two characters? There was, there was the cool Mike, Vivian. the cool guy. Mike, so Mike, the cool guy, but he was American, right? Cause he felt like kind of like, like an exchange student who had that like American capitalist ideal. He was almost kind of a preppy. And then there was a super angry punk Vivian. He was, yeah. So violent. And then what the existential uh, academic. Uh, yeah. Who Rick? Yeah, Rick, and then the and then the dirty and hippie Neil, the dirty Neil. hippie. Yeah. yeah, that show was great. That show was amazing. And, and then they would throw up a musical guest, like for no whatever. Reason. It's a sitcom. Here's a musical guest. Do you know the reason behind that? No, why? At BBC at the time had um, like a budgetary quota for sitcoms, uh-huh. and so they would be able to give them more of a budget if they were a variety show. So, oh. so they were like, okay, then we'll be a variety show. So the way they did that would just be in the middle of a scene. They would turn to the camera and say, and now Dexy's Midnight Runners. And then it would just cut to six minutes. Of I music. would love it if they only hired Dexy's Midnight Runners to play Come On Eileen it, over and over again. It's a great song. It's a great song. It's, stood, it's withstood every test of time. I think that's one of those songs when I was a kid I thought was hokey and and and... would kind of like distance myself from you weren't moved by it i wasn't by the fact that you needed to to (laughs) ralura i didn't realize how cool they were it turns out they're super cool yeah i I don't know i I, that's i don't know that's more the story of me having to undo my own kind of uh yeah man uh, tear down those walls it's like relate to women and dexy's midnight runners uh, i've I've grown laura in leaps and bounds over the last 20 some odd years Good. open your heart to dexy's midnight runners i will that's a message for all of us so so um from northwestern to Uh second city you performed with etc right i did yeah Uh, how did you get involved um well i moved i moved into chicago because i was already taking classes at IO um, and The Annoyance and already doing improv um, in the city. Mm. And I had seen Second City when I was in high school. So I don't know, I was sort of bit by the bug and wanted to eventually perform on one of those, one of those stages. So I ended up living in Chicago with two of my friends from college. We improvised, we wrote sketch comedy together. It was a three-woman sketch group. We did like maybe five shows and three years I want to say like we did which I mean I guess that's not like impressive if you're the Royal Theater of London and you have a budget but we were like three chicks trying to make it on our own and uh producing our own shows so we just wrote shows put them up wrote shows put them up wrote shows put them up and then eventually I got hired to be on the touring company Second City um which is where I met Jordan Mm -hmm. who's my husband and um then from there I got pulled up to to write a couple shows there. How long were you with I'm BBC? like saying it and I'm like, oh my God, it was so long ago and also my life sounds so boring when I say it out loud. <laughs> I was like, and then I got hired to, you know, figure out cancer. Nope, I... I did sketch comedy for a bunch of years in Chicago. That's a good explanation. That's a good thing to do. How, what was your experience like at, at ETC? I, I've only seen two shows mm. at Second City. Did you like them? I did. And, okay. and no offense to anybody on main stage, but I vastly preferred the ETC show to the main stage show. Oh. 
Um, it's kind of a crapshoot. Like I'm sure. when I was seeing it, uh, you know, it just depends on like the chemistry of the cast. Sure. Uh, I remembered, um, talking to one of my favorite directors at second city, his name was Dave Pompey. And I think that he was on the main stage while, um, Keegan, Michael Key and Tita Jagodowski were on, uh, ETC. And I remember him telling a story that like, they would just, that for some reason, the ETC show just had that like magic sparkle that you mm-hmm. occasionally have. And like, they would just hear like from like, cause they kind of share a wall. They'd mm-hmm. be like, ah, oh, that show next door is killing it. Dang. You just never know. Yeah. Yeah. Was there a competitiveness between the two casts? Not really. Yeah. No. By the time people get pulled up on the stage there, they've honestly been working so long in Chicago that they all really know each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I think they're, you're just happy to have a job finally that, kind of pays you to do what you love to do so yeah i didn't i didn't find it to be particularly cutthroat i think again it depends like who who, right um yeah um uh becky drysdale said one time she was talking about the differences between chicago improv and chicago acting and Mm -hmm. new york improv and new york acting Mm -hmm. and and she brought up what i thought was a good point that in chicago second city is the pace the place that pays yeah. And so it, it's sort of the the beacon for a lot of people. Yeah. And so people going through their training are training to be performing on a stage and training to have good a good sense of, of theatricalism, a good uh-huh. sense of etiquette, a, a commanding voice, a character range. You have to be good actors. You have to have good stage presence. Yeah. Whereas in New York, nobody really pays you to be on stage. It, it, there's a little bit more of a focus on developing web material and developing film and developing video content. And mm-hmm. so there's kind of a less, um, maybe a less heightened approach to how you use the stage. It, uh-huh. What's your take on that, having a foot in both of those worlds? That's interesting. It's kind of hard for me to have perspective now because I've only been in New York for maybe four and a half, four and a half years, mm-hmm. but I feel like I've been here forever. Yeah. Like I feel now if I meet someone from Chicago, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm from New York. Probably New Yorkers will be like, get out of my face, lady. But I feel like I've been here for so long that I'm starting to be more seeped in the New York and mm-hmm. that style. It's interesting. I think for me, it's more of a time period thing. Mm-hmm. When improv started blowing up in New York, that was already after things like web content and sketch groups like workaholics and stuff were taking off from doing work on their own mm. versus like through one of the systems through groundlings or second city or UCB, you mm. know, suddenly like this YouTube sounds so old, the YouTube sensation, <laughs> but it democratized things in, in a lot of ways in terms of how people got seen, mm. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so I think it's in part time period that like when improv exploded in New York, it was probably like, you know, five or 10 years after it had already like exploded, exploded in Chicago. And I think the landscape was different in terms of how people got found. Mm -hmm. So I I think that's part of the reason why, you know, people are more focused on like the digital side of it um, in terms of honing your voice, because the ultimate goal was to be a comedian who was working with an ensemble or writing for TV or being on TV. And New York has always been more um, success-minded than Mm. Chicago. So, like, in Chicago, if, like, success is a second city, that's just, like, a theater. There's kind of a ceiling in terms of, like, the industry there. Mm. So, yeah, I think that people probably focus a lot more on theatricality because that 
was for a time the the be all end all um and new york maybe had like a broader sense of like the different ways you could succeed in it yeah. which which makes which makes sense yeah um i also think that um you know there's other theaters in chicago that are similarly have a really great spirit of experimentation like io um created really great groups of people like the reckoning you know that just love to perform with one another and create different kinds of work as well so i think chicago also has that sort of find your voice kind of spirit um it just it just wasn't connected to the industry in the same way that it is in New York where, yeah, I guess if you're going to be a TV star and speak into a law of, you don't really need to learn how to project, right. but to be on Herald night, you know, on a UCB stage or even the magnet, like you still have, you end up learning if people can't hear you, yeah. they're not laughing, they're not responding. So I think there's somebody who said for trial by fire, like the performers here, once they get on stage, start learning that stage craft as well. There's a little bit of like a punk rock thing to it. That yeah. You just kind of get better at it by doing it a lot. I think so. Yeah. So I don't think, I, I feel like I haven't really answered your question. I just sort of think like, I think the timeline was different between yeah. New York and Chicago when things blew up. And that's probably the only real difference. Maybe you have more people that are, that are coming into improv without already having like a theater background. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of different too. Um, I teach a lot of improv one-on-ones and get so many great, interesting people, not just stand-ups. Um, sometimes I get Broadway performers if I'm teaching during the day, but you'll get people who are so funny, but aren't necessarily, you know, like uh, trained vocal performers. They might be doctors or lawyers or people who are just, you know, turning their life around and deciding to do something completely new. Engineers, you know, mm-hmm. who suddenly want to do comedy, which I think that's what's exciting about New York is that like all sorts of different people suddenly can be like, I'm going to do improv and I'm going to make it. Mm-hmm. In Chicago, I think people will kind of pick their thing and then are like, and now I have a condo because mm-hmm. I can pay for it. Mm-hmm. Which isn't bad. <laughs> Which is not bad. Unless and Chicago has a really poor. great work ethic. You yeah. know, it's like you have a lot of people that are doing something that they love, that um, they obviously want to do it well. And I think uh, improv is a really thriving art form in Chicago um, in a different way than New York, almost because sometimes people aren't thinking about like, how can I make this make yeah. me money? They're just thinking about how can I write the best show. I this is going to sound weird, but it feels to me like my Chicago friends have way more time than my New York friends. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that's possible, but people just seem to have more hours in their day. Well, yeah, you know the struggle is less in terms of paying rent. Yeah, you know um, your part time job doesn't have to be two part time jobs yeah. in in Chicago. Um, so maybe that's maybe that's it. Mm. But I don't know. I think New York just has a more frenetic pace. Yeah. Uh, the people around you are doing five, six different things, um, whereas maybe the people around you in Chicago are doing three. Yeah. Well, I think it can also be a little bit hard in New York. Maybe there's a... I can't contrast it because I've never lived in Chicago, but but maybe there is sort of a feeling of, of not having a lot of time to kind of let your voice mature or let your idea mature like you kind of have to move on to your next thing I don't know I mm. here this might be kind of an unfair question to ask or like an unfair evaluation to make but yeah. I'm really curious about it in your opinion uh-huh. in terms of finding and honing your voice mm-hmm. um, do you think well I guess like what's your difference in experience between Chicago and New York because it feels to me like not 
having that kind of capped off ceiling in Chicago and having less injuries, less, less industry be interested in you mm-hmm. has the kind of benefit to it of um, you can kind of like find what you have to say in a fairly consequence-free way. Whereas sure. in New York, it feels a little bit like that's part and parcel of, of how you audition for things too. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Again, not having lived in both places, I can't really comment on it, but I'm curious what you think about that. You mean you, you feel like the pressure is on earlier? Yeah. In New York, yeah. Then it—that's probably true. You know, if if you're doing industry showcases, like the first time you're trying out characters on stage, that mm-hmm. can be pretty frightening. I don't know, though. I think. Sorry, I'm gonna have to take a second and think about no, it. No, yeah, please. I think that. I think it is true. You have time to really gestate, like what do I want to say and how do I want to say it in Chicago, but also. I feel like art is so much about um, failing mm-hmm. that having the pressure to keep getting up and falling and getting up and falling and getting up and falling and getting up and falling, even if it is in front of a group of your peers or industry and realizing that it's more about uh, the resilience um, that I could have a terrible show or a char- terrible character showcase, but that doesn't matter because what matters is the next thing that I do mm-hmm. can also be a really great way to find your voice. Mm-hmm. This will probably sound kind of like touchy feely, but I think there's something to be learned from failing and knowing that you're still an artist that I think is really good about New York in terms of like, you got to just like put it out there. And if it doesn't work, you got to put something else out there. And it's all about um, quantity mm-hmm. On the flip side, there's something nice about quality, about, you know, maybe getting in Chicago to really, like, work with a group of your friends for a couple of years, um, to, to really take time so you can make the show that you want to make mm-hmm. so it doesn't have to go up in three weeks. I don't know, though. You know, sometimes I think constraints, and maybe this is because I've been living in New York, I think constraints sometimes force you to figure out what you want to say faster than um, the wide the wide open space of what is it I want want to say mm-hmm. and when do I want to say it? Mm-hmm. So I might be leaning more towards just having to put yourself out there, yeah. being a being a better way of forcing you to hone your voice because you're always changing too. Yeah. You know, it's not like I wrote so many sketch shows in Chicago, but. I had to write another one, you know, I couldn't just write that one. If I was still touring like the sketch show that I did when I was 22, it's like, I don't know if that would be my voice. Mm -hmm. Like that would be my 22 year old voice. Right. So, yeah. Well, there's also that thing of, of finding your voice and honing your voice. You can't really separate them like that. They're not two distinct things. You're finding your voice at the same time as you're honing your voice, which is maybe why I do think that it's, it's the ability to keep saying mm-hmm. versus being like, this is oh, that's interesting. what I have to say. Right. I, I think in comedy, yeah. I think, you know, comedy is a different beast than someone who's like Donna Tart, who's writing a, a novel for mm-hmm. however many years it took her to write Goldfinch, mm-hmm. you know, that, that kind of behemoth task with an internal world like that needs time to gestate and a specific point of view. I think comedy needs a specific point of view, but it also needs like uh, the spark of immediacy. Mm -hmm. It's rhythm. It's, it's very much more in dialogue of what's happening now in the moment Mm -hmm. than 
some other more like deeply meditative art forms. Mm -hmm. That being said, there's probably like a clown out there right now in Europe who's like perfecting the way that he makes eye contact. And that probably is like the truest form of improv in his voice. Maybe. You know, there's probably that one guy who like just he's working on this one turn of his head. And once he gets it, it's going to like explode everyone's head forever. You do. You read about like no actors in Japan uh-huh. who spend like 30 years yes. learning how to move their feet properly yes. before they're allowed to study their hands. Which by the way, I would be very, as much as I'm like, let's keep making work. I would be very excited to have that be my life. Yeah. Oh yeah. Really? Oh my God. Yeah. What about that? It's so disciplined. Yeah. I, like, uh, I'm never going to run a marathon. I'm just going to say that right now. My back hurts. I get too tired. <laughs> like I get hungry. But the idea of being able to get to a point where you can experience flow, Mm -hmm. I can totally see that in terms of learning how to do like a theater art form where you're doing like very specific dance moves, Mm -hmm. like just flow. Like you just know exactly how you're communicating. I think that's really exciting. There is something to, what's that, what's that, oh geez. It's the documentary about sushi. Do you know what I'm talking about? Hero, Hero Dreams, Dreams of, of sushi. sushi. There is something about like, I love spending your whole life perfecting one thing. Right. And his son spends maybe a year just taking the, what is it, the the seaweed paper yeah. and just like yeah. like crisping it, like learning how to crisp it. And, it, and, it, and then he like <laughs> spends another year like learning how to massage the octopus. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. There, it's interesting because, like, I think it's almost like two different ways of getting to maybe a fairly similar place. Yeah. It, it because I, both of them ultimately, I think, are are yeah some kind of honing of your nature or your voice or kind of finding yourself in the work that you're doing. Yes. But one of it has to do with I'm just going to keep on doing more and more and more and more right until eventually it, it the pattern is there. Or versus I'm just going to keep on cutting out more and more and more until it's just this one thing, but it's it has like my pure essence. Yeah imbued in it yeah you're just getting me in the sushi or you know yeah yeah that is true We're, wow who knew that comedy had eastern and western <laughs> western thought there you go in it there you go i think i think both when related to comedy are going to bring much pain if you are honing your one one person show in Albuquerque for 15 years, you will be sad in a different way than the person who is living in Los Angeles and just pounding the pavement. That is true. You know? So there's a, there's probably a balance. There's probably a yin and a yang. It's like you're putting yourself out there, but you're also giving yourself enough time that you're actually exploring versus just regurgitating the same thing over and over again. I guess that's another form of stagnation that you can be stagnant by sitting in in your safe, you know, your safe little bubble. Mm. And you can also stagnate by just forcing yourself to keep, um, pressing the same button for the same little rat pellet, you know? And I guess you find that doing improv sometimes too, right? If you get in like a track with the, you know, doing the same character or touching the same taboos to Mm -hmm. like push the audience's buttons, it's like it wears out and you have to explore again, find that, find that new, that new tasty treat. This might be a weird question, but do you have a sense of, of your voice as a comedian or, or, or is it kind of quasi-conscious? Is it something that you think about or it's just kind of 
what you do when you move on? Oh, man. I don't really... I mean, yeah, I, I guess right now, in terms of thinking about my voice, in quotation marks, it's, it's what I'm interested in trying to do, how I'm interested in trying to push myself. Yeah. Um, I would say that probably I, I like stuff that feels grounded and has humanity in it. I actually find my voice in terms of comedy comes out a lot when I'm teaching because I'm like, oh, like I'm seeing what I'm responding to in other people. Yeah. Um, Incidentally, I've noticed I'm a much better improviser when I'm teaching. Really? Than when I'm improvising. Oh, that's good. Wait, wait, wait. No, you mean when you're in the classroom teaching, you're a better improviser yes. than when you're on stage? Yes. Uh, how, how does that work? I think because I'm kind of at the service of other people. Yes. Yes, that makes sense. You're giving, you're giving a gift. Yeah, and, and it's all in, in feeding back to other people and all in trying to help people kind of uh, uh, realize what they're yeah. saying or doing or responding to them very directly and there's no kind of feeling of how I'm coming across. It's just, here's your response You're to not that. worried about yourself. Yeah. So I've noticed I have a much bigger character range when I'm teaching classes That's than funny. when I'm on stage. There, there's just less <laughs> guarded censorship up there yeah. because I think the consequences are totally different. Right. Well, I mean, that's true. Yeah. And also you've created the environment and the class too. that you're teaching and you know it's a safe space. Yeah. Um, and There's can, like a combustible element to the audience. Exactly. In the yeah. Which can be really exciting. Yeah. Um, and hopefully everyone's on board together and it is a, a safe space. But you're right. Yeah. There's always that fear that, you know, yeah. you, could, you could go down in flames. That, the irony being that the more you take a chance, the better chance you have of not going down in flames because totally. you're rewarded for your risk taking usually. Um, I'm sorry, I cut you off. Oh no. I, I mean, my comedic voice, like <sighs> Buffy, the vampire slayer mm -hmm. meets, um, kids in the hall. I mean, no, I don't know. I, I like I like supernatural stuff. I like stuff that has a real hu humanity in it, like yeah. a real human element. Um, I I I really enjoy playing um, you know characters that maybe have a, a dark side or a blind spot, yeah. um, but still remain human yeah. human beings. Um, you know, not caricatures. Uh, you know. I don't know. It's no, my, my voice. I, my voice is tr is trying to be okay with failing yeah. mostly these days. I, I'm trying to really push myself to, to I'm in a, a period right now where I want to learn more in terms of the production side, like how to, how, how to direct, how to produce my own stuff. And I think if I think too much about like what exactly it is I'm trying to say, it makes it harder for me to make different kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. Cause right now I feel like I'm a baby trying to learn stuff. So mm -hmm. I have to be like, your voice is, you know, whatever you can learn to do in terms of that two shot and that reverse shot. Yeah. And good job. Yeah. But I do like supernatural stuff. Like, let's be honest. I just watched three episodes of sleepy hollow last night and okay. I had to turn off it's cuckoo bananas in a good way. Yeah. Um, yes, it's good. I'll say that. Yes, it's good. But but I but fans get mad in the second season. I read I read stuff on the Twitterverse. I've spoiled it for myself. So it, it's inescapable. You can't not do that anymore. I know. Yeah. I'm I'm mad. I got mad that they were mad. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. probably if I was watching, I'd be like, season two. How dare you jump the shark? But now I'm just mad that they were mad, and I'm like, eh, maybe I'll just stop after season one it's a little weird uh, these days because sometimes i find i have to like give myself some quiet time just to sort out what my 
authentic responses are and yeah. what responses I've just kind of absorbed from Facebook and other people's chatter about publicity, stuff. publicity. Yeah. It, you are under, you're under a kind of like hypnotic spell of, of what. what it's almost co- like you, I end up just caring about things that are popular sometimes. Yeah. Even if it's not necessarily what, what I'm into, if something is being talked about, I just assume that it's something I should care about. That's interesting. Yeah. I bet Noam Chomsky would have a lot to say about that. He could totally explain to us what's going on. He would, but I, would, I wouldn't want to talk to Noam Chomsky. No? no? Not at this podcast, anyway. Maybe uh, like over tea or I something. I love Noam Chomsky. He's an interesting fellow. He's so well-spoken. He actually owns the fact that he's not a very interesting public speaker. Yeah. I feel like I've heard him say that he likes that he maybe he's not the most charming because people actually have to listen to the content of what he's saying. Yeah. Very, that's a very... Um, like pre-80s thing in my mind when you actually had to listen to the content of people. Of what people were saying? Yeah. <laughs> it's like if you watch like TV shows from the 70s where it would be like, you know, John Lennon and B. Arthur and uh, <laughs> like Arthur Schlesinger would be like sitting around discussing like whatever. Just like, whatever they're this? feeling. Yeah. I have it, not seen this show where now you just, you just, it's meatballs too meatballs and, too and, and this and weird John <laughs> Lennon, B. Arthur talk show K-hole that yeah. I'm going to find myself in. I, sometimes I watch like Dick Cavett on YouTube. Okay. Just because I find it so fascinating how different culturally yeah. what would make network television back then versus nowadays. Right. You wouldn't get a Dick I mean, Cavett. Sleepy Hollow is what makes network television now. That you is true. Cross quantum leap with the American Revolution, with X Files. What you gotta, you gotta. It's like you gotta get it all in there, man. Yeah, yeah. I can You know, I'm gonna get in trouble for saying this, but I probably f- feel about Game of Thrones kind of what you're describing about like being immersed in something just for being popular. Oh yeah, because everyone's talking about it. Everyone talks about it, and and it, it is a very entertaining show. But when when the season's over, I could care less. I just don't think about it really? at all. And then people get excited again, and then I get excited And then you get again. excited. Well, but it's communal. Yeah. It's the water cooler. That's we true. Don't work, we don't work at offices where we have a water cooler, so we need to talk about the, team, same, the, tame, the same TV show. That's true. Do you, do you think that that is sort of becomes a, like a neutral yes. um, like language just so that we it's can... It's sports for arty people. That's so interesting. You know? Yeah. It's like... It, it unites us all, even, you know, similar to sports, even if you don't feel the same way about the show, yeah. if at least if you've seen it and you can talk about it, the argument is like very satisfying for both of you to have. It's it as if it's like passionate about together. Yeah, Redskins fan versus whatever skins fan. Yeah. I, that's so interesting. I, I was thinking about that when the Red Wedding episode came out a couple of seasons ago. And spoilers for anybody. Turn this off or skip forward. <laughs> right but it, I know what happens. I didn't even see it. You didn't see it? Did you read the books? I saw the first season yeah. and I'm afraid to read the first book for the opposite reason that you're talking about. I know that I will love it. Yeah. I am I am big. I get really drawn in to fantasy worlds. Yeah. I love it, love, love it. And also because it's written, you know, like each each chapter, correct me if I'm wrong, each chapter I think is like from the dif- a different point of view. It's all first person, but from different like multitude of characters. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, that's going to suck me in. Yeah. That's going to suck me in and leave me like I'll just be on my couch like a husk. Yeah, I'll be a husk dreaming about being inside of Game of Thrones. Does that go back to your curiosity about other people's minds and experiences? I mean, yeah, it's so fun. I mean, it's so fun yeah. to like. 
That's also great. I, that's probably why I like fantasy stuff so much is that you can really get immersed in a world because the authors of fantasy books, I was reading Brett Easton Ellis um, the other day. Uh, I just read Lesson Zero for the first time and it was great and it had a lot of references from the 80s, but he didn't really have to like describe what people look like mm-hmm. in a way that if you're reading a fantasy novel, it, you have to. He could just make references like, you know, we went to the movie theater and there's Elvis Costello poster on my wall. And, like, shorthand, I know what all those things are. I know what they look like. But I feel like when you read a fantasy novel, because it's not necessarily real life, like, they have to describe it so much that mm. you just get totally... It's like forcing you to imagine this different world. Yeah. And then you're like, I'm in it. Yeah. I'm in it to win it now. I just read um, Under the Skin by Michael Faber. Have you read I that? I saw the movie. Yeah. Did you like it? No. Yeah. The book is I didn't. wildly different from the movie. I heard, I heard that the book is more of a, like a dark social satire. Yes. It's funny. Yes. Versus, yeah. Yeah. you know, like a beautiful music video that, yeah. that from the mind of FKA Twigs before FKA Twigs thought of it or yeah. something. Like that. It, yes. I didn't hate that movie. I just thought it was, it was like humorless. Like I liked the first two thirds of it. And then there was a turning point for me where I was like, you're not going to fucking sell me yeah like what like about i don't know but well the whole movie has such an alien feel to it and mm-hmm. and, and it has like an alien sensibility to it that yeah it, there's this kind of cold inhuman yeah. quality the book is very different because the, the book actually has a very human perspective to it and that's where the social commentary comes in because you know neither here nor there but a lot of the book is written when she picks up one of these hitchhikers yeah it's first from her perspective and then the next paragraph is from his perspective and hearing their thoughts and and it's a really interesting uh, um kind of like Rashomon kind of thing of, of how wildly each of them is only really seeing themselves and the other person and seeing what they want and seeing what they're thinking and missing out on really important clues about the yeah. other one. It, 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 I, I just found myself reading that and just watching people on the subway all week and trying to think what's going through their <laughs> who, mind. Who am I going to kill? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who am I going to kill for my alien meat farm? Exactly. Yeah. That's the plot, by the way, of Under the Sky. And you, and you know, too, in the book during this exchange, like, you know that she's going to kill him, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know how it's going to end. Yeah. So, the, yeah, that's great. So the, the clues that are being missed are even more yeah. deadly. Yeah. See, that's why I think, I like Game of Thrones. Like, I'm just going to get sucked right in because it's like, it's this fantasy world. It's got dragons in it. I know what everyone's outfit looks like. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> then don't start with the show because you will. I, I've it, seen it, season one. Okay. And I actually, I love the end and I love that they, like, I was like, this is great. Yeah. They're going to kill. Ne-. Like, I was like, okay, so this is the kind of show that's going to kill off its main character. Like, that's how sweeping it's going to be. Then I watched the first couple episodes of the second season and. Uh, it, it, parts of it are great and parts of it are like really meandering and finding themselves. Yeah. I think it's like certain characters get their hooks in you. And then when yeah. they go away, yeah. there's always that risk of. You know the hook gets taken out, yeah. so somebody needs to hook you real fast. Yeah, because I only have so much time to watch so much TV. Totally. <laughs> well, that's actually that leads me to the next thing I want to talk about, which is you're super productive and super Am super I? busy. I, I think feel so. like I'm not. <laughs> by, by contrast to the way I'm living my life, it, 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 you, <laughs> I mean, just in terms of output, you, Yin and you're yang. doing a lot for sure. We should switch places for a week. <laughs> okay. I'll come do this podcast, and you try to teach yourself how to direct. Okay. That's, uh, Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, and uh, your husband Jordan is also mm-hmm. 
really busy and really yeah. hardworking. Um, just in terms of like, I don't know, mm-hmm. what a comedy lifestyle looks like and feels like. How, how is it something that you have to make time for a personal life and make time for new experiences, or is it all just like one? Is your work your passion and, and your life, and it's all one kind of awesome? great continuum that's a weird question I'm <laughs> it's sorry. an awesome great continuum that's that's how i should sell my life to myself wake up every morning it's an awesome great continuum i'm on the continuum um it's hard yeah it's really hard um to keep to keep working and like you said find a a balance um uh a lot of times doing comedy is so great because um, you get to connect with people. Mm-hmm. And I think I've, I started off wanting to do comedy cause I always really wanted to write and I really wanted to perform and I wanted to do, um, strong female characters like ab fab, mm-hmm. but that I wasn't really necessarily seeing a lot of on TV. Um, but also I think that, you know, you, you do comedy, you do art stuff cause you're kind of a nerdy kid who, mm-hmm. who likes to like make eye contact with people and hang out. Mm. So sometimes I think, you know, the personal life and the comedy life really overlap. And there are times when I'm like, Oh my God, I haven't seen a friend outside of a context of a rehearsal or like a note session or, you know, after I've seen their show or, you know, just like passing in the wind, going to two different uh, things, which, which, then you do lose that other part of friendship, which is like hanging out for no purpose, mm-hmm. which also makes you feel kind of connected. So yeah. I think that's what's really hard is finding the balance in terms of um, being with people and feeling inspired, but also not taking all your relationships and using them in service of the comedy. Right. You know, it's not just like, I want to I want to hang out with you so that you, we can we can write a sketch yeah. and it almost sometimes it feels like uh, a great synergy and sometimes it feels like, Oh, I'm just like using, am I just like using my friendships to forward my career? So you got to find that balance where you feel like you're really enjoying each other's company. Um, and it's not all about like getting ahead because also like what's getting ahead. Yeah. Like ideally if you make it in comedy, you can, you know, be Seth Rogen and James Franco and just hang out all the time and do movies. So you still have to have a sense of like that friendship and that life. And also, like you said, new experiences too. Like it's good to know people and why I love living in New York is you can know people who do things that are not just comedy. So you can talk to your friend who like works in the justice department and you can talk to your friend who's like an editor of business week. Like those are important people because when you're in New York, you need to be connected to the fact that like, right now is some crazy shit going on. Like this is a crazy time, like earthquakes, all, you know, it's like, there's a whole world that I think sometimes you can forget when you're just in this comedy world Mm -hmm. and you're only seeing each other who do, you know, when you're doing comedy that Mm -hmm. you get kind of like insular that it's all about like, what kind of joke can I make, uh, off of this current event versus like, Whoa, like this is actually affecting me. Yeah. (laughs) Like as a person. And it would be nice to just, sit and eat with my friend and be like, how's your baby? (laughs) There's another kind of insularity that happens too. There's the one within the community itself, but then there's also sometimes your goals can end up becoming your whole world. Yes. You know what I mean? And, and which is bad. It is bad because then you get the goal and you feel completely empty inside or you don't get the goal. And then you feel bad about yourself because you've started um, just thinking you're the goal. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it's this interesting thing where 
it, it kind of um, sometimes your goals can can put a screen up between you and what you really need uh-huh. or really want. You know, they kind of take you away from yourself a little bit, or but, they can take you away from um, an opportunity that's actually presenting itself. For sure, for sure. I've well, been how many opportunities? A lot about that. Yeah, so many opportunities in my experience don't look like opportunities at first presentation. Right, right. Like if you're so focused yeah. on getting one job yeah. or, you know, one TV show or one person uh, to notice you or one joke to hit, yeah. you could be losing out on, you know, like time and time again, you're losing out on like a bunch of other really cool experiences that are the actual learning experiences that are really fun. Yeah. So how do you keep that balance for yourself of, of being driven and knowing what you want to do and working hard for it, but also keeping yourself open and, and aware and a person? I think it's about, to, to sort of rephrase what I just said, it, it's about um, sort of taking stock like um, every day and realizing, you know, what what do I want to do today and who do I have available to me to work with um, and how can we make something, you know, right now, like with the resources that we have now versus focusing so hard on that job or that um, thing mm. that you want to be in the future, I think that makes all the difference. Because then the drivenness is all about using the ingredients that you have at your disposal. Mm-hmm. So if something great comes out of it, then like thumbs up to you, like you did something great with your day and your time versus being so obsessed with the future, meaning like, I need to do something to get this. Like if you make a web series because you're sure that that's going to be turned into the next, um, you know, broad city, you're probably not going to like your web series. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to enjoy making the web series and not think about it's a mean, not everything can be a means to an end. So I really think that's what it is. It's like not being future or past thinking. You just have to be like, have enough wherewithal to, work hard in the present with what you have available to you and not be obsessed with that, you know, it has to get you something or that it has to like make up for, because also people can be past minded, like, Oh, that, you know, like, Oh, I I didn't get, I didn't get on that team or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I'm not going to stop until I get that thing that I wanted before. Instead Mm -hmm. of being like, that didn't happen. So who cares? Like you have to learn that a lot as an actor doing auditions has taught me that certainly like commercial auditions. It's like, it is such a roulette. Like, <laughs> there is no way you can determine if you're going to get a commercial or not. So you have to, like, go show up, do the best you can in the moment, and then, like, completely forget about it. Yeah. You need to care about it while you're doing it. But once it's done, it's, like, cool. Yeah. Like, that's that's gone. Like, you can't be like, oh, I needed that commercial, so yeah. now I'm going to try so hard to get a commercial just like that. You need to just be like, whatever. Like, what can I do now? It, um, did that answer your question? Yeah, it okay. did. And and then some, it, it's really interesting because there's a real art and skill at being able to let go. And, and I know it's hard. It's really hard, but it's so interesting how, how, how many of our ambitions mm-hmm. aren't really ambitions so much as they are not having let go of something painful right. in the past. And, and, and even if you get it, you kind of find that like, I'm not that person anymore. Right. So it wasn't a real ambition. Yeah. Once, once you get it, you, you realize, Oh, I don't feel, (laughs) I thought I was going to feel completely transformed. Yeah. You know? 
Um, and uh, you don't. You don't at all. Yeah. I love the idea of just using the ingredients that are at hand. Yeah. That's a nice way of thinking about it. Which is kind of what improv is, too. Totally. You know, you, you know sometimes you can't even choose who's on your, your team. Yeah. It's like you don't choose the suggestion. You don't choose who's in the audience. Yeah. Um, whoever steps out with you steps out with you, and you have two minutes. Go. Yeah. Like, make a great, make a great scene out of it. And then if it wasn't the best scene, great. Like, make another one. Right. Let it go um, and do the next thing that you're yeah. going to do. Yeah. And I say that acting like that's easy, but you're right. That That's actually been a struggle. Yeah. That's definitely been something that I've been working on a lot since since I moved here. Like, how to keep motivating myself without punishing, you know, punishing myself if it doesn't reach the, the heights or the goal that I wanted it to. And I was like, oh, I just need to not attach what I'm doing to a goal. Yeah. And have the, right, the process be the... The process is a product. Like right. If you have a good process, then like, great, you made it. Yeah. And which in and of itself is kind of, it's kind of the game that you keep on coming back to. Well, Cause as frustrating how, as it is, yeah, you keep on coming back to it. That's how you learn. That's how you learn other skills, yeah. you know? And that's also how you build the working relationships with the people that ultimately, um, when, if whatever you are successful, you will be working with. Yeah. I think that it's, it's a rare person who can just make it, uh, because they got struck by lightning. I, I don't know what kind of DNA you would have to have in your body to just suddenly wake up and suddenly, you, you know, I was reading, um, oh, Sleepy Hollow, I was thinking about Sleepy Hollow. It was pitched by a guy who, according to all the trades, like was not in the industry at all and like total outsider. And then I dug a little deeper because, you know, Hollywood loves yeah. uh, rags to riches story. Yeah. Um, but they're all kind of bullshit. Yeah. Like, and once people make it, somehow this rags to riches, like all of a sudden it just happened. Like it's the story is concocted because we love it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turned out that guy had written like five pilots and he hadn't necessarily been like in Hollywood, but he'd been working in the mailroom at UTA and then as, as an assistant for maybe like six years. So like he was making relationships and doing stuff and writing on his own. But for some reason we don't, we don't get excited about telling the story about hard work. Yeah. We, we really hate talking about hard work as if it's n- not, <laughs> like, not an enjoyable thing. Yeah. And maybe that's the Midwestern in me. I enjoy hard work. Like, yeah. I, enjoy, I enjoy, you know, trying and failing. And I think that's actually more exciting, having something that you've worked on really hard and, and worked on for a long time, relationships, all that good stuff come to fruition versus just, like, whatever one day you're sitting in union square and someone's like you got a great face girl mm-hmm. <laughs> like i don't know why we like the the lightning the lightning story much more than we like the story about people who are just sort of like working it makes me think of like if if like there were a, a cultural adjustment where we did kind of celebrate hard work mm-hmm and we didn't make these out of the blue stories so yeah. sexy, but we made like people who just do what they really love and do it well, and 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 for like a long time, for a long time, and it <laughs> and suddenly someone notices, and that's cool for a while, but then people forget, and they're still doing it because yeah. they still like doing it because yeah. they liked it all along, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder if that would like lift a cloud collectively. I wonder how many people would kind of realize that, like, oh, you know, maybe I'm, like, better off than I thought I was. Yeah, and also let you really look at yourself and see if you really like doing it. Yeah. 
Because I think that's what people really have to end up grappling with. Do I like doing this? Yeah. You know, do I enjoy showing up every day and, you know, auditioning for commercials? You know, maybe not. Maybe that's not actually how you want to spend your time and there's a better way to spend your time. Do I like sitting down and writing every day? Because, you know, you you hear a lot of people, and I I did this for for some time too, being like, oh, I'm working on, you're talking about writing versus writing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually do enjoy like I'm an only child, so I enjoy like sitting down with my laptop and like tic-tacking away and writing. But I think for some people, it's like they don't even like writing. Yeah. It's like then don't like yeah. then go 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 act, yeah. go go be an improviser or like go be a carpenter. Like there's so many ways you can be creative. But I don't know. I think sometimes we're stuck in this cage of being like, I just gotta have lightning strike me and. Yeah. I know I'm special and someone's going to find me, but it's like, but do you even like sitting down and doing it every day? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, that's super, super interesting. And, and I, hmm, let's see, there's so many things I want to talk about from what you just said. (laughs) Let me go back to you loving writing. Yes. I'm curious, just like on the more technical side of Mm -hmm. stuff, do you, when you write, First off, do you consider yourself prolific? As a writer? Yeah. Uh, maybe not in terms of, like, produced material, but, I mean, I assume you write a lot. I do, yeah. I, 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 I consider myself prolific in that I think I am always making something. Yeah. And, and I always do try to... Um, I'm, I'm always working on longer-form scripts, but really, since I come from, like, a, a sketch and improv background, I'm always trying to do at least a couple short projects that are um, producible in terms of getting the finished product out. It'd be like a video or putting up a sketch show. I find that very satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, to Because to me, a, a script is a blueprint. There are some authors out there who are like beautiful and their action lines read like poetry. Um, and their script on the page, you know, like the... What, People probably say like the Chinatown script, right? It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's a masterpiece work of art. To me, scripts are a, a blueprint mm-hmm. for what's going to happen when actors say the lines and a certain director visualizes it through her own perspective. Um, and then the editor, you know, reworks the story so that it, it, it has, you know, their touch of drama or comedy. So I always like to be prolific in terms of always making having something that's made so that every month I can be like well I made that even though I'm still working on these longer form scripts they don't ever feel done to me mm-hmm. if that makes any sense like even if I'm like ah put a fork in it like that's my 90 page screenplay it's never going to feel done until I can see it yeah. or you know you don't really finish right you just kind of stop yeah yeah and it's and it's obviously it's it's really hard to get a script made. Um, so, so I do think I am prolific in terms of always wanting to have, um, at least, uh, like a little tidbit that, that is real, that is, feels tangible to me. Does that that sort of give you the motivation to step onto the next thing? Having, looking back and having X number of accomplished pieces for this month, does that then kind of give you encouragement to wake up again tomorrow and keep on working? I think so. I think it, I think it makes me feel good to have, I, to have completed something. Also, I just read, uh, like, uh, one of the keys to happiness is like, uh, making your bed every day. So I think that, I think there's that quality in it that when you feel like you've actually finished something versus having like some long form scripts that, like you said, feel kind of open-ended. Yeah. 
um, because they aren't going to be ever yeah. produced. Yeah. Um, it does feel good to look at something and be like, well, that's done. You know, I did, I did that. When you're working on something long, there's also the added element that by the time you get to the end of it, you're a different person than you yes. were when you started it. And yeah. so you can keep on writing the same script indefinitely, probably. Yep. It's nice to be surprised and look back at something that you did mm-hmm. and say, hey, that was good. Yeah. I, I, I actually enjoy what I produced two years ago or six months ago or last week. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I usually have that. With, with longer scripts I've written, I feel like I look back at them and I'm like... Oh, there's a couple good moments in there yeah. or, or like, Oh, I love that character. But I, I feel like I haven't had the, haven't been like, Mwah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I always want to change it or tinker with it or find something new. Yeah. I think I, that seems healthy. I mean, a certain amount of dissatisfaction seems healthy to me. Yeah. It's more like a, like a restlessness, right. I think. Right. You know? Yeah. It's not that I'm like, ah, oh, this is a piece of shit. I just, I feel like a little restless about it. Yeah. It's like I, it's like, um, because once you finish something, it doesn't feel like it's like, you, yeah. you know, when you're writing something, sometimes it feels like this is me. Yeah. <laughs> Even if you're doing an improv scene while you're doing the improv scene, you feel like it's me. But then when you can take a step back from it, it doesn't feel like you anymore. And then it's like really fun to tinker with it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but while you're writing something, I think it's harder to like step back and be like, let's tinker. You're just like, this is how it is. Yeah. <laughs> and then you look at it two years later and you're like, oh, but actually <laughs> like there's a way better third act to that or it begins and it could begin in a totally different time, you know. You directed um, probably my favorite show that I've ever seen at the Magnet. Uh, what? With, uh, Jana's show. <gasps> Yay! Classic singles, Ballads of Loneliness. Great. I love that show. Yeah, it, it's brilliant. and um, It's really great, isn't it? It's really It's incredible. all Jana, man. It's yeah. all Jana. Yeah. It, I, I was more of a midwife of that show. I'll say I midwifed it. I <laughs> love that so much <laughs> that it... I... I I studied directing in college, mm-hmm. which I think is a step below studying poetry in college. Because <laughs> poetry has insight into something beautiful, but studying directing in college is... Well, if you can learn to direct in Trimeter, then you've really made it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so much of the way that they teach directing in college is about building pieces from the ground up. You're yeah. the kind of grand designer. Uh-huh. And, and that always kind of ran counter to my my instincts. Uh-huh. I always really love the idea of, of you're kind of like assisting at the birth you're getting, you're organizing all these people together and, and giving yeah. them a kind of focal point. But your, your job is to just kind of like make sure that this baby is born healthy. Yeah. Um, and now it's interesting listening to you talk about your own writing process mm-hmm. because at least in my mind, directing isn't too far removed from writing, but you have that sort of step apart where you're able to help shape somebody else's because it's not you necessarily. It's not you, right. You get better, clearer insight about what you love. And it's never going to be you usually exactly. too unless you're, you know, directing a movie you're in, which right. is probably a whole other mind fuck, yeah. right? But yeah, you're right. It, it can feel very separate. I actually think that writing and editing like are similar and I think directing is sort of a different... Be- I think directing and acting are also similar in this way. Yeah. Like m- more so, like writing and editing are about like cr- i don't i don't even know it's like creating the creating the story mm-hmm. like making sure that you're creating the story and i think like acting and directing are way more about taking those elements that you have it's like you know writing and editing it's like you can 
create. It's like you can make a new thing. Mm-hmm. You can you can cut. You can make a new scene. You can show a different point of view. You can write a new character, or write a new scene. But when you're directing or you're acting, it's like you are very much in time, and like you only have like what is in the present moment, mm-hmm. and you need to like be cool. Mm-hmm. You need to be cool, and you need to make everyone who is around you. Be cool so that that moment can really sort of like flourish. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the sunshine or something. That's interesting. Like writing and editing to me are like, you know, like doing all the gardening and then like acting and directing are like, this is the moment where it blooms. Yeah. And so it's like, what do we do? Like, how do we, how do we pick the flower? Yeah. <laughs> how do we pick the flower right now? Like we have a short amount of, uh, amount of time. It's like I'm watching this performance, so it's like I can't I can't write it. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's what I like about directing too is that I can't be Jana. Like, I'm not Jana. She has all of these like talents, like that, uh, like she can sing. She has such a specific point of view. So, me directing it is not going to be me writing it. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't have an idea of how it can go. I can like help shape it, and I can help her feel more like herself, mm-hmm. which is what's exciting. And I can give it. I can give it a shape and then see if the the rhythm works when she does it, you know? I want to actually take a sideways thing yeah. really quickly because um, helping her feel like herself yeah. uh, kind of ties into, to, I have never done your classes, but mm. what I've heard about your classes, um, uh, people feeling a strong sense of being free to be themselves oh, in good. your classes. How, how uh, this is probably too big a question. Okay, one of them. How, I, um, I guess, what's your strategy as a teacher? You said before that you really love teaching. I do. How does kind of directing and teaching kind of overlap in your mind? How, how do you make people feel I approach very good them, to be themselves? I approach them very similarly. Yeah. I, I feel like my skills as a director definitely come out of the uh, like hours I've done in the classroom, um, specifically teaching improv, I think, um, helping people make something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. It's a lot about... Um, when I'm teaching, I, I, I believe, and this is something that not everyone believes. So feel free to argue with me because it's a little, it's, it's a little pie in the sky. I truly believe that anyone can be funny, that anyone can be an artist. I know some people are like, you got it or you don't Mm -hmm. like, I don't necessarily believe in innate talent. I do believe that like, Everyone has it inside of them, but you got to create the right conditions. I think some people have those conditions. Um, it's really easy for them to slip into any condition and be able to um, open up and be creative and be spontaneous and take a risk and make a connection and have a, a you know a, a point of view. Um, I think for some people, for a lot of people, it's really hard. You know, we're scared. Like the fear of public speaking is the biggest. Like maybe even the biggest fear before fear of the dark. Like I, it just, there's so much anxiety, I think that, and that is really what you need to help people overcome the blocks that they have to being creative. And then once you can help them overcome that, then you can start talking about the work Mm -hmm. and then you can start shaping it together because once, once you help people overcome, get the conditions right, then, um, you can like start a dialogue. It's almost like, you know, you're teaching people to improvise with each other, but really I'm opening the dialogue so I can talk to you about Mm -hmm. like what you think you're doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not to say that I'm not sometimes prescriptive in my classes, but mostly I like, I want to see what you want to do. Mm -hmm. And I think it actually takes a long time 
for people to get to the point where they're doing what they want to do. Because there's so many rules, and they want, they want people to like them, and they're nervous, and there's fear. So I think if you can just like get rid of all that, then you can be like, oh, okay, so you want to play. It's like you love playing. You, you know, like, like you got to... I have one friend who's like a really great, uh, funny improviser and like, he's a guy, but like, he's got like a real fun Midwestern gal inside of him. Mm -hmm. It's like, you want to be a Midwestern gal, like perfect. But you gotta, you gotta get to the point where the inhibitions are down so that that can come out. And then we can actually have a conversation about what we're doing. That sounds really, I'm like, listen, my talk is like, it sounds really deep and cheesy. I just, I, I think everyone is great. And I think it's so scary to create stuff that, as a director and a teacher, I just want to like do the thing that I would want someone to do for me yeah. <laughs> if I was in their class or if I was in their play. Yeah. There's, there's something to maybe, unconditional love is probably too big a term for it. I'm not that nice. Yeah. <laughs> but something to that idea of, of like, we welcome you for who you are mm-hmm. and you don't have to be anything other than who you are and what, what is inside of you is already more than enough and yeah. and you're welcome to bring it out. I, like, I find I'm a little bit passive as a teacher sometimes yeah. in, in that like if somebody feels kind of like unprepared, I don't mm-hmm. push them or really put too much pressure on them. It's like, well, if it's not this class, maybe it's a class yeah. in six months time, but I'm not going to embarrass you right. to do this thing. I'm going to wait for you to I mean, feel you don't make them participate? No, everybody has to participate. Right. But you don't but push them to be uncomfortable. I don't, I don't... That makes sense. I don't give terribly difficult notes to people even when there is sometimes a very specific thing that is notable. Yeah. If it feels like they'll get over that once they drop their fear, but the timing doesn't feel right. I think right yeah. now it would, it would hurt them more than help them. Right. Embarrass them more right. than empower them. And, and, and there's something just about like when you're, because it, I guess like I have a hard time writing. Writing is a real struggle for me. It's hard. It's, it's super lonely. Yeah. And, and <laughs> I think just that idea of like, okay, I'm creating this, for some reason, it just like doesn't register on on my insides mm-hmm. very well. But the idea of helping to like create an event, yeah, helping to bring elements together to mm-hmm. to like create a a, a special space where something wonderful yeah. is going to happen, that I find super appealing. Yeah, and and that's where my writing brain kicks on when right. I'm watching other people do right. stuff. You know, and suddenly you have ideas for characters or motivations or totally. where you can take this second beat. Totally. Yeah. But it's it's just it's I'm not creating it. I'm just seeing the possibilities that are already there and what people are doing, and you're kind of gently guiding a little but bit. But like, I'm sure that most writers who are like really great at it, that's what they're doing. Yeah. They're able to do that for themselves in their own mind. Like, yeah. what's who's the guy who wrote Game of Thrones? He's just like sitting there, and like those characters are just he's like eating a Cheeto, and like those characters are just like those conditions are happening. Yeah. This is an, actually another interesting question. Um, uh, what an interesting question I'm about to ask. <laughs> Actually, this is probably a really stupid question, but uh, um, uh, when so when I sit down to write, I'm yeah. looking at a blank computer screen yeah. and I'm filling it with words. Yeah. Do you like I've read of people having the experience where like your characters are kind of alive on your mental screen and they're mm. kind of like coming to you a little bit. Do you have that experience, or is it really the kind of meat and potatoes work of? boiling down what you're doing and kind of figuring it out as you go. Is that too weird? 
No, it's not too weird because I think you're talking about seeing the words uh, on the page versus being in the imaginative space of the world. Yeah. I think um, I came from a background of improvising and writing at the same time. So often I feel like most of my best story stuff has come from working it out um, either with someone else or with myself, mm-hmm. like character-wise. Um in, in the space, talking out loud or writing, um, like with someone, you know, jotting down notes. So I think that's where the real work comes. And then writing for me, meaning like actually typing, are you talking about like typing a screenplay or something that feels a little bit more like transcription. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So like, I think, and I think I've tried it the other way where I just sit down in front of the blank page the transcribing, the writing for me doesn't happen at the same time. It's better when I have an idea I figured out the idea because I'm a little more like kinesthetic, like moving around, talking, having an idea of the characters, how they look and stuff. That doesn't often happen on the on on the page, on the static screen. Um, I usually have to think out the story or the so, characters or what's fun about it, the status. Yeah. Writing really is more like editing for you then. It, you're you're yeah. kind of, you're living it first and then kind of editing down the transcription. Yeah, hopefully getting into the structure yeah. that tells a story. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's better for me to have an idea of the characters and how they talk and the images and stuff before I sit down to really, really hash it out. And I've done it the other way, but I just find that then you, you get kind of like a, like a hat, like a, like a sad half baby. <laughs> it's got like a re- like, it's got like a cute, like a cute little face, but then its body is like all like shriveled and you don't know how to hold it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like kind of sad. Yeah, I, I know the baby that you're talking about. <laughs> and then you're just like, you show it to someone, you're like, it's good, right? And they're like, no. And you're like, I know, I know. Well, I don't know what to do with it. I feel like with those ugly babies, it, it, it's like you were kind of too much in control of it from start to finish. Yeah. And it doesn't have that sense of surprise to it. Or that, that spark or whatever, Yeah, right? yeah. You can kind of sense the difference when someone's created something and they were sort of in a state of like semi-surprise yeah. and semi-discovery versus when it was kind of like I know that I know this is funny. Yeah. yeah. I, know, I, know this, I know this is a good screen action movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's lifeless. This will work. Yeah. This is a formula, right? What, um... For like anybody listening who who is really feeling like they want to be producing character stuff, yeah, um, but sort of doesn't know where to start or 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 how to go about developing what they have, what would be sort of words of wisdom that you would give them to make characters? Yeah. Oh man, I, I think just getting up on your feet and doing it, I, just like improvise. Honestly, tape yourself. If you can't stand watching yourself, tape it on your iPhone and transcribe it later. Hmm. That that's the best way to find fun fun nuggets of stuff, um, you know. If you're if you're tactile, like come in with a costume piece and play around with that. Um, but I feel like that's really the the best way is to get the characters sort of in your body yeah. and let them sort of speak speak for you, and then you know find find what the the nice little uh, package for them is like, you know, where, where do you, the who, what, where, but if you got to kind of find the energy of the character first, right? Like who they are, what, what, what they're about, their, their point of view, their tics, you know, when you're directing other people or helping other people develop Mm -hmm. material, how do you help them get into their body and and find their voice, find the character? We hug and kiss. Uh Um, I, 
I mean, different ways. Sometimes I, I give them assignments. Uh, usually I have people come in, like, we'll have a rehearsal where we sit and we talk about ideas. And um, like I was just talking about in terms of writing, like, the, the story of the character, the story of the, the sketches that they want to do. And then probably the next time they come in, like, I'll have them just show them to me mm-hmm. instead of, like, reading. And then usually writing will come later where it's, like, then they've transcribed what they like, and then we can start get get into the nitty gritty where it's like, we well, you know if you if you begin the monologue here, like the game is really clear, or you know it would be really nice to um, to sort of hit this pattern a couple times if that makes any sense. I, yeah. I still feel like it's like have the conversation about what you want to do, give them some assignments, have them come on and do as much as they can on their feet, and then we can start the the writing. To me, for character work is is honing honing the monologue. Mm-hmm. It's it's not I feel like because the thing is you're going to get on stage and if it's something isn't hitting, you need to be able to improvise. It the character needs to be writing the piece versus you wrote this great piece. That's what that's something that's very different from character work versus stand up. Stand up, it's like you you have like to the to the T, like the words need to be in the right place to hit sometimes for certain stand-ups to, like, fucking kill it, right? But for character work, it's like, if you lose the character, you have nothing. It's like, no joke you're going to say once you've lost your character is going to make the audience like that um, person again. Mm-hmm. They, they, We know when you lose the human being that was standing in front of them. So it's like, you have to have that in your bones. Well, anyway. Great. This has been a fascinating this conversation. This is a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for talking. Thank you for having me. Uh, and thank you guys for listening. This has been the Magnet Theater Podcast. Uh, I'd like to give a couple of big thank yous. First off, to our engineer, Grant Michael Goldberg, to our producer, Evan Ford Barden, and to our executive producer, Ed Herpsman. Uh, the Magnet Podcast is brought to you by the Magnet Theater Training Center. We offer classes in improvisation, sketch comedy, musical improv, storytelling, character creation, all kinds of wonderful, fun stuff. If that looks or sounds like something that would be enjoyable to do, please check us out on our website, magnetheater.com, to find out all that information. Uh, I'm reading which one. Also, be sure to check out the (laughs) Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnetheater.com. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Bye. Watch Game of Thrones. Watch Game of Thrones. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. 